So there's this, these things now. This, I'm not saying this as a name or as a pejorative, but <clears throat> hacks. You know what I'm talking about? Hacks, life hacks. It's like everywhere you go on the Internet, there's hacks, things, uses for things that you never knew you could use them for or new things that you didn't know or things that have always been there that you didn't know about. So like mayonnaise can take water stains off of your coffee table. Did you know that? You're welcome. See, I'm just here. And you can basically use vinegar to do anything in the world. That's what I'm <laughs> gathering from all these life hacks. It's like everything. It's like we'll regrow your hair and bring world peace and all that stuff. <clears throat> Apple cider vinegar especially, yeah. Yeah, if, 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 you're sick, just, if you're sick, just rub it rub it on yourself and you'll just get better. That's how that works. Or just be in the same room as it. That's, that's kind of a life hack. <clears throat> now, I'm going to show you one. <clears throat> Maybe you've seen this already. But here's, here's a hack that I just, I just didn't know. The Gatorade cap fits on the bottom of the Gatorade bottle and stays there. Now, now did you know that? Now, some of you that, that have the Internet at home, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> You've probably seen that, but that's just an example, a hack. You know, it's like that's always been there, but we didn't know it, that there was a purpose for it. So these hacks, <clears throat> just something that make you go, wow. My favorite is that, have you seen the people that use like little Lego figures to hold their cables like this? They put them in their hands. See, that's awesome, right? right? That's just it's neat little tricks that make you go, wow. Why have I never done that? And then we still don't do it because we're like, it's, it's yeah, it's not. So, like, all you YouTubers go and do life hack search video things. And search it on Pinterest. There's, like, a blue million on Pinterest. So, <clears throat> life hacks. You will be inundated with them if you want to see them. And some really are just amazing. And some are pretty neat. Coca-Cola is another thing you can do anything with, by the way. Battery acid. Yeah, battery acid, clean your toilet with it, all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> I'm not kidding. You laugh, but I'm not kidding. <clears throat> yeah. Clean your windshield with it, all that kind of stuff. So, now, don't drink it. Don't drink it, it'll kill you. Tastes good. It's tasty with Mexican food, especially. That's my personal opinion, which is objective truth. So, today, we're going to find a life hack in the Bible. And this really surprised me. I've been anticipating this passage since before we even talked about doing Matthew, because this is a passage that has always mystified me. This is a passage that I think, if, if really understood, changes a lot of things. And I'm not here to blow your mind and give you new truth, okay? That's not what I'm trying to do. It's just I think properly understood, this passage today supercharges our Christian experience. And the element that we're going to use... The, the hack that we're going to find out today comes through the law. The law. You know, the law that we Christians don't have to, have to worry about, right? The law that doesn't pertain to us anymore. Thank God, praise God, the law's been done away with. I don't think so. Not so fast, my friend, to quote Lee Corso, right? The Old Testament law, the entire Old Testament, it's under attack today, right? Our buddy Andy Stanley has said, unhitch yourself from it. Be done with it. And not just part of it, but all of it. We need to move past the Old Testament 
so that we can reach this generation today. I'm running out of noises to make. The Old Testament law, does it matter today? Is it binding on the New Testament Christian? How do we relate to the law? How did Jesus relate to the law? Should it be thrown out? Or maybe it should be used in a different way than it was used before. Today, Jesus speaks clearly, emphatically, and authoritatively on the Old Testament. So if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 17 through 20 today. It'll be up here if you don't have a Bible or an app that you can use to read the Bible, which I'm for, by the way. I'm not saying that disgustedly. But if you would stand as we read the very words of God this morning. And, uh, wow. After preparing for this, all I can say before I read it is, wow. The very words of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, I am a bit overwhelmed this morning at what we just read. Pray for your Spirit's help to make clear what you are saying to us, regardless of our place today, regardless of where we're at with you or in the world. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, convict sinners, convict the saved, and make us all in the image of Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. We could almost just close it down and walk out now because the Lord has spoken. Right? But I think we need to unpack it a little, which is what we'll do over the next several minutes. First, though, we've got to look back at where we've been the past few weeks with the Sermon on the Mount particularly and the Gospel of Matthew generally. We've said from the beginning that Matthew is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience to help show that Jesus was and is, in fact, the King of the Jews who had been promised through the line of Abraham and David. We saw his lineage traced, we saw his birth foretold, and then we saw the actual event unfold early in the book. Then... After spending almost 30 years in obscurity in Nazareth, Jesus comes onto the scene after being prepared for by his cousin John the Baptist, his forerunner, his herald. Jesus was then baptized, announced as God's beloved son, and then led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After these things, Jesus moves to Capernaum and makes his base there, calling disciples and beginning a ministry of teaching healing and announcing the kingdom of heaven as being at hand. And then we saw him get really famous really fast. And his fame spread to the far reaches of the land of Palestine and beyond, up into Syria, down south. And as this is happening, 
as he's walking through all these places, teaching and he's preaching and he's healing. And at the very height of this, Jesus goes up on a mountain, beginning in chapter 5. And he begins to teach his disciples. Again, he's speaking to his disciples. I know I say that six times every week that we've been in Sermon on the Mountain. I'll continue to say it. It's important. These are words to his disciples. And they are the basics of this kingdom that he is bringing into the world. He began with the Beatitudes, which by the way, we call them that. He didn't. Now I will pontificate on the Beatitudes. Jesus didn't say that. We call them that because of a Latin word, uh, beatus, which means blessed, blessing. So he began with that which told the characteristics of those that he has brought into his kingdom. Now remember, these Beatitudes, these blessed ours, were not things to do in order to get into the kingdom. But rather they are descriptors of what these kingdom citizens look like. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted and reviled. So from the get-go, Jesus makes it clear that this kingdom is different than the world and different from the expectations of the Jews. So then he moved from those beatitudes, to the characteristics, which were the characteristics of the citizens, to what these kingdom citizens do. And that was last week. They are the salt of the earth, preserving and flavoring the environment that they're in. They are the light of the world, giving light, exposing and dispelling the darkness around them. They do good works, and as they do them, they show God to be glorious to those around them. Now, in what we have read and what we'll see in today's passage, we'll see the next step in Jesus' message here. So we're going to start at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, My first question when I started preparing here is, what's the shift in focus here? Okay? Why did Jesus kind of take a right turn? Because it seems like He does, right? Because we've talked about, blessed are these people and you are the salt of the earth. And now He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I think there's a few reasons. And I don't think it's a major shift, by the way. Like I said right before... Uh, We've moved from the characteristics of the kingdom citizens to the works that they are doing. Now, Jesus is going to show how the kingdom citizens are supposed to do these works. Where they get their information from. What their works are to be based on. Blessed are they. They are the salt and the light. And their actions, their deeds are based on what? They're based on the law and the prophets. To which I go, really? Because I've always been told, like I said at the beginning, that the law is done away with. The law is not binding to the Christian. And we're going to talk a lot about this this morning. But Jesus directly moves into who you are, what you do, and now He's saying, I'm going to tell you how to do it, and I'm going to tell you how to do it out of the law and the prophets. Jesus makes it as clear as He can here at this point that He isn't making any kind of shift away from God's prior revelation of Himself, which we call the Old Testament. So we believe that Jesus is, was the Son of God, God in the flesh. So is God going to show up and say, all that stuff I said before, don't pay any attention to it. I'm just messing with you. I mean, really, think about it. 39 revelatory, revealed books 
And Jesus is just going to show up as God in the flesh and say, okay, we don't need that anymore. That's not what's going on. He's showing up and he's saying, the Word of God is the Word of God. And these deeds that I'm talking about are going to be based on the Word of God. What deeds are done by the kingdom citizens that bring glory to God? They're deeds based on the law of God. The law is God's way of revealing Himself to His people. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I want you to do to show the world around you, Jewish nation, what I'm like. And God, does, does God change? Praise God that He does not change. So all those things that He revealed before, He's not changing them. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And so at this point, Jesus has become a a bona fide Jewish rabbi. He's got disciples and people are following. He's teaching in the synagogues and stuff. So everybody's looking and they're saying, which rabbinical tradition is he going to line up with? Is he going to follow Charles Stanley or John Piper? Lester Roloff, maybe. Jason Moore, Lord, don't do that. So they're watching him and they're like, which rabbinical school will he choose? And then he starts this Sermon on the Mount and he says everything upside down and backwards from what they're used to. And throw in this little bit of information, there are some who believe that when the Messiah came that he would do away with the Old Testament completely. And they're basing that on Jeremiah and Ezekiel when God said, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And they're saying, okay, if he makes a new covenant, the old one is obsolete then. But here, Jesus talks about a new covenant that would be established and he draws a hard line and says it's based on God's law. A new covenant that contains all the promises and revelations of the old covenant. Hmm. He had not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is going to spend two-thirds of chapter 5 discussing the law. So this is a big deal. And what does He say about this law? Well, He mentions more than just the law. Jesus mentions the law and the prophets, which would refer to the whole Old Testament. If He had just said the law, people had their own opinions about what the law was. Some people said the law was just the Ten Commandments. Some people said the law was just the first five books of the Old Testament. Some people said it was the whole Old Testament. Some people said it was up to the history section, up to the writings. But Jesus makes it clear when He says the law and the prophets from Genesis to what we call the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, all of it. He hasn't come to abolish any of those 39 books, but He has come to fulfill them. So He says law and prophets to make sure that we understand it's the whole Old Testament. And what does he say about the Old Testament? He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now that's a mouthful. What does it mean? We've got to define some terms first. Okay, What does abolish mean? In the Greek, it means to annul, to do away with, to rend powerless pointless, purposeless. Jesus said, I have not come to do that with the law of the prophets and the prophets. But I have come to fulfill them. Now that word means to satisfy, to fill up, to carry out, and to give full obedience to. 
Jesus said, I haven't come to make it powerless or pointless. I've come to bring it to fullness. Completion is not really a good word here. Fullness is a better word. I've come to embody this so that you can see what it looks like in its fullness. Sinclair Ferguson says it should be, he came to fill it full instead of fulfill it. Jesus came to show us the fullness of the law and the prophets. Now, we said that there's a change in the progression here in in the passage. And I think it's necessary to note that the pronoun has changed, right? John Stott observes this. He began his sermon with Beatitudes in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He continued in the second person. You are the salt of the earth. And now he changes to the authoritative first person and uses for the first time his distinctive and dogmatic formula, I say to you or I tell you. So this is not about who you are as much as it is who Jesus is. We've moved from third person to second person to first person. So Jesus is saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus moved from talking about kingdom citizens generally and then to the disciples specifically, and now he moves to talking about himself and the standards that he will hold everyone to, both Jew and Gentile, both believer and unbeliever. And again, that standard is the law and the prophets. And his coming to not abolish them, but rather to fulfill them or fill them full, puts the focus squarely on him, on his doing, on his accomplishing what needs to be accomplished in order to fulfill this word of God that we call the Old Testament. Now, more on that in application. For now, let's move on to verse 18. I'd love to spend a lot more time there, but we're going to move on. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, what will Jesus do? How will he fulfill this law? My question is, will it be on a, oh, I know the Father kind of basis, like I know people, so this law thing, don't sweat it. Or maybe he's going to come and establish a good curve for us to be graded on. Anybody ever been graded on a curve? Anybody know the curve buster? Nobody likes the curve buster. It's the person that usually comes, I'm going to fill this test so bad, I'm going to fill this test so bad, oh, it's so hard, and then they miss one question. Everybody else missed 18, and the curve is busted because the one person missed one. They're like, well, I really thought I was going to fail. (coughs) Listen to me. I I need you to hear me say this as plainly as I can say it. God is not grading on a curve. One standard, and it's perfection. You get into heaven one way, by perfectly fulfilling the law. Good luck. Here's your test. Some of you have already failed it. All of us have already failed it. So there's no curve. Jesus says no curve. Because until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And if God hasn't changed and God's not going to change and the law is the law and the law is the standard... He's got to hold you to that perfect standard. 
Righteousness, right standing with God, comes on perfection. And no other way. Authoritatively, he says it. For truly, I say to you. Now again, there's the formula that Stott mentioned there. For truly, I say to you. Authoritatively, like a king, right? I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. So Jesus is is stating authoritatively that this has to happen. The law has to be accomplished. So people are going, okay, so he's a law guy. Okay, so he's he's all about the law. So he's probably more like a Pharisee because those Pharisees, they were all about the law. So people are starting to get the lines here. Jesus is saying authoritatively, and he's saying it based on heaven and earth passing away. That's pretty authoritatively too, right? That's like saying, you know, if the stars fall from all you guys that are writing these love poems to these girls, which is awesome, by the way, do it, do that. Write poems, it's good, right? You know, until the stars fall from the sky, my love for you will remain. I'm not going to go on because I don't have anything written here, but, but Jesus is making a, a permanent statement. Until heaven and earth pass away, nothing will pass away from the law. And I'm telling you authoritatively so, not an iota which is the smallest letter in the alphabet, not a dot, which is just, there was a difference in in a Hebrew letter that had one little tiny poop at the bottom of it, which made it a different letter than it was before. And Jesus is saying none of these things are going to pass away from the law down to the smallest mark because the law is authoritative and the law has to be accomplished. It has to happen. It has to come about. So nothing's going to pass away from the law. So when judgment day comes, the standard is going to be the law. Authoritatively, as sure as the heavens and the earth are here, the king says nothing's going to pass away from the law. Hmm. So they're like, okay, 19. I promise we're going to sew this all up. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven? I do. Well, I I don't know about greatness. Jesus wants you to be great. You're like, well, I just if I could just get into heaven, I'll just be happy. Okay, but Jesus wants you to be great. And what what determines greatness in the kingdom of heaven? He says here, people that do and teach even the least of the commandments of the law. And I know some of you are thinking, but bacon. We'll get to it, I promise. In verses 17 and 18... Jesus has talked about the standard of the law. And then in verses 19 and 20, He talks about how that law has been twisted and distorted in His time, especially by the scribes and the Pharisees. And what they've done is, they've relaxed this law. What they do makes it look like they've really enacted the law. Because man, they are all about methods. They're all about deeds. They're all about external doings to show that they're righteous and that they take the law seriously. But what Jesus is saying here is, and we'll we'll see it more in verse 20, 
that they've actually relaxed these commandments. They've missed the point of them and they've made them about external acts of righteousness. And Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and the Pharisees look at the law and they feel like it's impossible. But they say, we got to do something. we got to do the law so that we can be righteous. So they created an external doing of their interpretations of what would look like a law-ish thing. And they had their own interpretations of the law and prophets and they adhered to their interpretations. Again, rabbinical schools. Who says this? Who does that? I like this guy and his interpretation, so I'm going to follow him and I'm going to do what he says. To the point that they had come up with their own traditions which superseded the law and they kept their traditions instead of keeping the law. And that's what they were basing their righteousness on. I keep the traditions meticulously. I tithe mint, dill, and cumin. And Jesus is saying that is relaxing the law. Because who can do external deeds of righteousness? Anybody. Anybody can do these things. They may not like it. And they may say, oh man, man, this is hard to do these things. But really what they're doing is they're relaxing the law. And it was their only hope of actually doing something that might look like the law. Now let me tell you how meticulous these people were in doing these things. I'm going to read a lengthy, it's a few paragraphs. I just didn't want to distill it. It's just too good. It's from John MacArthur. Okay? I'll tell you when I'm done with quoting him. It's, it's pretty long, so stay with me. He says, let me give you an illustration. For example, the Old Testament law had said that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and rest from your labors and so forth. Don't work on the Sabbath. But they said, all right, if we can't work on the Sabbath, what is work? They had to determine what work is, so they decided to have a study on what work is. They decided, first of all, that work was to carry a burden. So you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath day. Then they said, what's a burden? Let's decide what a burden is. The scribal law put down, quote from the scribal law, a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make the pen. End of quote from the scribal. And then... MacArthur says, and so on, and so on, and so on. All that stuff was the limit. Anything beyond that was a burden. He goes on to say, can you imagine trying to handle all that stuff? They spent endless hours arguing whether or not a man could lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath. They spent time arguing whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out with a needle stuck in his robe. They had a big discussion of whether or not a woman could wear a brooch. If it was too heavy, it was a burden. Or whether she could put false hair on. If it was too heavy, it was a burden. If it weighed more than a fig. They also had a big argument about whether a man could go out on the Sabbath with with artificial teeth or get this, an artificial limb because that constituted a weight. They also discussed if a man could lift his child on the Sabbath day. These things were the essence of religion to them. I'm almost done with what he said. They decided also that to write was work on the Sabbath, but writing had to be defined. So they decided that, quote, he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right hand or left hand, whether of one kind or of two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, is guilty. 
Even if he should write two letters from forgetfulness, he is guilty. Whether he has written them with ink or with paint, red chalk, vitriol, or anything that makes a permanent mark. Also, he that writes on two walls that form an angle or two tablets of his account book so they can be read together is guilty. But if anyone writes with dark fluid, fruit juice, or the dust of the road, or in sand or anything which doesn't make a permanent mark, he is not guilty. If he writes one letter on the ground and one on the wall, or two on the pages of a book so they cannot be read together, he's not guilty. As long as they're separated. The passage from the scribal law, believe it or not. They also said that healing was work. So obviously this had to be defined. Healing was allowed when there was danger to life, and especially in the area of the ear, the nose, and the throat. It's almost like they knew something. But even then, you could only take steps to keep the patient from getting worse. No steps could be taken to make him get any better. It was a pretty hard balance. So you could put a plain bandage on a wound, but no ointment. You could put plain wadding in a sore ear, but not medicated wadding. The scribes, you see, MacArthur says, were the people who wrote out all this stuff, and the Pharisees were the ones who tried to keep it. To the strict Orthodox Jew of Jesus' time, the law was a matter of thousands of legalistic rules and regulations. So when Jesus came along and said, I haven't come to destroy the law, that's not the law that He was talking about. If there was one law He wanted to wipe off from the start, it was this law. He wanted this phony stuff. He was after that phony kind of stuff. He condemned it and Paul condemned it in his epistles. Jesus was not talking about the traditions of men. He was talking about the law of God. He came to fulfill the law of God, the absolutely inviolable law, a law that never changed. End of quote. And aren't we the same way? And especially when it comes to the Sabbath. Right? Listen, y'all. If Jesus said it's a good idea to have a day of rest, it's a good idea to have a day of rest. Well, can I mow my grass? Can I wash my car? We'll get to that. Okay? Jesus came to fulfill the law of God. The absolutely inviolable law of God, a law that never changed. So what they were doing, what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing, were actually relaxing commandments. Although it looked like they were amplifying the commandment. It was all external. And Jesus says here, when you relax one of these commandments and teach others to do the same, and He had the scribes and the Pharisees squarely in His sight when He said these things. He was talking to His disciples and He was talking about the Pharisees and scribes who were standing there. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments of the law of God and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, the law of God, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I'll ask you again, who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus says here that you need to do and teach other people to do the law of God. All of it. And you see here the concept of rank, both in deeds or your sins. There's worse sins than other sins. There's better deeds than other deeds. And you also see the concept of rank, of standing in the kingdom of heaven. You will be rewarded according to your works in heaven. Works matter. Works do not save you. Cannot save you. But works matter. 
Spurgeon says this, The peerage, P-E-R-A-G-E, the rank of peers of Christ's kingdom is ordered according to obedience. And to which I would add, obedience to what? Obedience to the law and the prophets. To the law. And make no mistake, these are kingdom issues. Twice in this verse, in verse 19 alone, Jesus references the kingdom of heaven. The king is making his kingdom clear both in the misconceptions people have about it and how those who are in it are to aspire to behave. And just when his hearers, both the disciples and the crowds, think Jesus couldn't go any further out into left field, verse 20 happens. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can just hear the air disappear off that mountaintop that day because everybody looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and they say, they're the righteous ones. Look at them. They dress righteously. They do righteously. They teach righteously. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what is righteousness? Righteousness is our standing before God and our dealings with and doings before men. So unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never going to see heaven. The word exceeds is actually two words, two Greek words, and it means to abound greater. It's, it's almost a hyperbolic word. It's like, like really, really, really is bigger, better, more. It's an emphatic word. Jesus says unless you're much, much, much more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And these Pharisees had both complicated and reduced the law to a set of external practices. It's recorded that they had made both positive and negative laws. They had do laws and not do laws. 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions. And that's how they were going to be righteous. And Jesus says, you've got to be more righteous than that. They're like, oh gee, how am I going to do that? You expect me to be more righteous than them? And Jesus says authoritatively, emphatically, yes! Because their righteousness is external and it's done in the power of their flesh. And Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than that, you'll never see heaven. But aren't we supposed to keep the law? Aren't we supposed to not forfeit or do away with even the smallest command, the smallest jot or tittle of the law? Is that not what they're doing? And Jesus says authoritatively, it's exactly what they're not doing. They're keeping their traditions. They're keeping their commandments. They're not keeping God's commandments. And everybody's got to be shaking their heads. And remember, what is this whole mess? Not today. What is this whole Sermon on the Mount about? It's about Jesus. It's a description of what we look like in Him. Now let me ask you a question. Jesus said He came to fulfill the law, to fill it full. Did Jesus ever break the law? No. Remember when we talked about him being baptized? And he said, let it be done for all righteousness sake. Remember the point of that? The point of that was that he associated with us. He became like us. 
Why? So that we could become like Him. Let me tell you some really good news. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And then He says, now I want you to do the same. And we say, oh Lord, we can't do that. And He says, you're right. But I did. And my righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because it's not an external righteousness. It's a true righteousness born out of me keeping the law perfectly because I knew you couldn't. And I knew you wouldn't. But I want you to aspire to. And I want you to turn your face and your heart to me every time you fall because I'm going to remind you, you can't do it, but I did it. The scribes and the Pharisees were proud and exalted themselves and they loved the applause and the praise of men. And Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come as crouching beggars who say, I got nothing, I can't do this because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, if you don't do this, it doesn't get done because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't turn our eyes away from the law here. He points us to the law to show us, you can't do this. And any thoughts that you can because of external deeds that you do take you further and further away from the kingdom of heaven. Anything you do that exalts yourself or earns the applause of men pushes you further and further away from the kingdom of heaven. Anyone trying to enter the kingdom of heaven with external works will never be able to do so. So we need a righteousness that abounds greater, far greater than an external one. And that's the end of our passage today. You say, well, I still got questions. Good. Because we got application points. Three Ps. We three Ps of December 2. Place, purpose, power. Place, purpose, and power. And what we're talking about is the place of the law, the purpose of the law, and the power of the law. First, the place of the law. Hear me say this as plain and as emphatically as I can say it. The Old Testament is authoritative and the Old Testament is necessary. And we dare not unhitch ourselves from it. And I'm not just saying that toward Andy Stanley. I'm saying Jesus said plainly today, He did not come to abolish this law or the prophets. He hadn't come to abolish it, but to fill it full. And anybody that teaches people to do anything different than the law will never see the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament is authoritative. The Old Testament is the Word of God. And it's necessary. And listen... Try to boil this down to the simplest thing that I can boil it down to. There are three aspects of the Old Testament law code. Okay? You've got the ceremonial law, which talked about what to do in their worship, what to present, what offerings to bring. They had the civil law, which was for the nation of Israel, which was supposed to be governed by God, later governed by a king. And these are the civil laws of the nation of Israel. And there was the moral component of the law epitomized in the Ten Commandments. Now what part of that did Jesus come to fulfill? Yes. All three. 
Jesus came to fill full all three of those components of the law of God. And you're saying, well, now you're drawing man-made distinctions. It's very easy to do that, and it's right to do that when I look at the Old Testament. God had a specific purpose for the nation of Israel and He gave them laws to govern their worship and their civil dealings. And He gave them a moral law to go by. Now, what people tell us now is, well, we don't have to keep the ceremonial or the civil law anymore. We're just supposed to keep the moral law. And Jesus said, the law and the prophets, which the prophets said a lot of things too. And what the prophets talked about mostly were the consequences of not keeping the law, whether it was ceremonial, civil, or moral. So the question, and what you see all the time, unbelievers say, so you just get to pick and choose then which part of the law you want to fulfill. And I say, no. I say Jesus fulfilled all three components of the law. So what's binding on us? What's the place of this law in our lives? Galatians 3, 23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. But my question is faith in what? In who is a better question. Faith in Christ who fulfilled this law perfectly. And the law's place was before faith came. But now we've been talking about Abraham. How was Abraham saved? By faith. So all of these laws that were laid out, whether they were ceremonial, civil, or moral, were things that were showing us who God is, what God wanted from His people, what God expected from His people... And they were doing acts of faith even when they were keeping the law. The law was never meant to save them. I'm going to get to that in a second. I almost jumped ahead of myself. So what Paul's saying here, does that mean that the law is over and done? It can't be because Jesus said the exact opposite in what we read in the Sermon on the Mount today. He said that we were not to relax even the least of the commandments of the law. But Paul's saying here that this law served as a guardian, a tutor to lead us to Christ. So can we just throw it all away once Christ comes? And Jesus says authoritatively, no, you cannot. Still the standard. And it's supposed to show you what I'm going to do, who I am and what I'll be like. So, which takes us to the purpose. So the place was before faith came. That's the place of the law. The purpose. We have to know the purpose of the Old Testament writings. We saw here that the law was our guardian, means tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now watch this, Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through keeping of the law. Leading to eternal life through external acts of righteousness. Sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. The law came in to increase the trespasses. The law came in to show us, wow, I can't do this. And then Jesus shows up and says, you got to do this. And that's His way of saying, you've got to place your faith in the one who can do this. The law came in to show us our need for Christ. As a tutor, leading us by the hand, here's the one who can teach you what you really need to know. Anybody ever had a tutor? Anybody ever been to Tudor's Biscuit World? Okay, that's many more people have had a biscuit as big as your face than they've had somebody to help teach them. A tutor is not your teacher. A tutor is somebody who helps supplement what your teacher is not conveying clearly to you. And the law serves as the one who isn't here to teach us. The law leads us to the one who can truly teach us. The law's a tutor. Let me show you what you can't do, but you got to do. Oh, why are you teaching me that? Because there's one who can, and there's one who will, and I'm going to lead you to him. It comes in to increase trespasses. Oh, man, the more I look at the law, the more guilty I feel. And that's the goal, to increase my guilt. And the prophets came too to show the consequences of not keeping the law, and they foretold of the coming one who would keep the law. So Jesus says, we're not going to relax anything they said either because they have a purpose as well. So the place of the law leading us to Christ, or before Christ came, the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. And now, here we go, the power of the law. Listen to me. Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law and the prophets. The ceremonial, the civil, the moral, and hundreds of direct prophecies about Him. And He did it perfectly. The New Testament is the filling full of the Old Testament. And the New Testament purpose and place, once we see it filled full in Christ, is to bring about not negative prohibitions, but abundant life. Okay, uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his message on this was just excellent. He gave, you don't try to explain electricity to a child. You just tell them, don't stick that fork in those holes because it's going to hurt you. You don't get into electrons and neutrons and waves and particles and ohms and resistance. You just say, don't! Because it's going to hurt you. That's the positive power of the negative prohibition. And the law was the negative prohibition. And then Jesus comes in and then He explains electricity to us. And we get it. Like, whoa, I don't want that in my system. I can operate outside of getting electrocuted. That's a good thing. That's abundant life. Jesus said plainly in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill, destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Listen to me. When we see the law filled full, then, then we have abundant life. Not when we neglect it and push it aside and unhitch from it, but when we look at it and go, wow, this standard is unreal. And then Jesus comes and says, let me show you how to do it. And we go, wow. Wow. 
I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Almost done. I said before, only perfect righteousness can qualify us for life in God's presence and only reliance on God can make us perfectly righteous. Bonhoeffer says it this way, there's no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God and no communion with God apart from fulfillment of the law. You need to get stuck in that infinite loop for a little while and think about that. The Spirit of God is not going to lead you to do anything contrary to the law. And external righteousness cannot succeed. And the law just says you've got to be righteous, you've got to be righteous, you've got to be righteous, you've got to be righteous. And the law demands a blood sacrifice for sins. And you can't spill your own blood for your own sins. But Jesus can shed His perfect blood for your sins. Which is what He came to do to fill the law full. He kept the law from the first to the last point. He obeyed every command. He embodied every sacrifice. He absorbed every sin of every one of His adopted brothers and sisters. And He filled full the law for you. So place your faith in that. Let me tell you what I'm not saying this morning. I am not saying you better get busy figuring out what the law is telling you to do and not do. I'm saying as you study and read and try to live out this Old Testament message in our New Testament day and time, may it drive you to Christ and place your faith in Him. Now listen, the Sabbath. Oh, wow, we like to fight about that, right? Well, good thing I can wash my car if I want to. I can mow my grass if my ox is in a ditch, right? And we just get all kinds of crazy. We're going, what are we doing? Listen to this. The question that you've got to ask yourself when you're trying to live out the law is, have I received the law from the hand of Moses or from the hand of Jesus? Sinclair Ferguson points this out, and he refers to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to read just this section of Pilgrim's Progress, then we're going to be done. Now when I had got about halfway up, I looked behind and saw one coming after me, swift as the wind. So he overtook me just about the place where the settle stands. Christian says, Just there, said Christian, did I sit down to rest me, but being overcome with sleep, I there lost this row out of my bosom. Then the character faithful says, But good brother, hear me out. So soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow. For down he knocked me, and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him wherefore he served me so. He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that he struck me another deadly blow on the breast, and beat me down backwards, so I lay at his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried him, Mercy! But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear. Christian says, who was that bid him forbear? Faithful said, I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord, so I went up the hill. To which Christian says, the man that overtook you was Moses. He spares none, neither does he know how to show mercy to those that trans- transgress His law. 
If you receive the law from the hand of Moses, the law is a cruel taskmaster that tells you what you can't do and only shows you your failures. And you cry out for mercy, and the law of Moses says, I don't know how to show mercy. But the one with the holes in his hands and in his side walks by and not only shows us mercy, but gives us grace and gives us his perfect righteousness and says, Law fulfilled. Law filled full. Law accomplished. It is finished. It is paid in full. It is done. So what's the hack in the law today? Don't look at the law as a bludgeoning tool because that's what Moses used it for. He didn't know that's all he had. But receive the law from the hand of Jesus as the key to abundant life. Moses didn't know how to show mercy. He just brought the blunt force of the restrictive prohibitions of the law of Sinai. But Jesus fulfills the law, fills it full, and lays it out as a matter of the heart leading us to love God and love man as the perfect fulfillment of that same law in our lives. So now, now that it's fulfilled, fulfilled full, the law has the power to lead us in right living both toward God and man. It becomes our very template for how we are to live. So are we to avoid certain foods and keep the Sabbath by not bearing burdens? No! The law at that point was in its non-fulfilled stage. Now that it is fulfilled, with the ceremonial and civil parts completed in the work of Jesus, and He did complete them. They were pointing to Him and He completed them. Now that that's happened, we are free to walk in the moral aspect of the law, and that is loving God and man. Paul says it this way in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now let me ask you a question. Do you want to fulfill the law in your life? Love other people. Love God. Which is, is that not exactly what the Ten Commandments teach us to do? Love God, love other people. Worship Him and serve Him only. Don't take His name in vain. Don't bow down to false idols. It's what we do with God. And what do we do to other people? We don't take their stuff. We don't lie. We don't steal. We don't kill. Love God and love other people. Paul's not done here. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, let me ask you another question. Getting way back to the beginning. Can you fulfill the law? Not in and of yourself. But Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And is that not exactly what he did for us? So that in the power of his spirit, we can fulfill the law by loving God and loving other people. Here's the hack. The law is great news. It's good news. It's not obsolete. It's not done away with. It is the focus of our Christian lives. And the fulfillment of the law is love. It's love. 
Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and now we can walk in obedience to the full measure of the law, not just its negative demands. Look to the law. Love your God. Love your neighbor. Let's pray. As for this God, His way is perfect. Our Lord is in the heavens and He does what He pleases. And not only that, God, but You have chosen to live Your life out through us. You have given us as a gift the full righteousness of Christ. And You have given us as a free gift Your Holy Spirit to live out these commands. And God, we don't want to get lost in minutia of what we can and can't do. But God, we want to love you and love other people. And it is truly that simple. This is not complicated. This is not hard. It is impossible to completely fulfill them in and of ourselves. But it is completely possible. Nay, it is commanded authoritatively that we place our faith in the one who has fulfilled all these things perfectly. And now we are to go out and do the same and teach others to do the same. So help us, God. Help us to do just that. To love you and to love other people. And so to fulfill, to feel full this law in our lives. We do need your help and we thank you that you eagerly give it. And God, if there be those here this morning who do not know you as their God, who do not know Jesus as their Savior, who do not know your Holy Spirit as their stay within friend, God, open their eyes and give them life this morning. Give them a taste and a desire to keep your law and to do your will. Convict them of their sins and show them that those sins are paid in full through the sacrifice of Jesus who lived, died, was buried, and resurrected and who now sits in the place of power and authority until he comes back to judge the earth. Show them these things. God, show us all these things. And may we give you glory with what we do and say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat if you can. It's a